Yeah, that's a great. Yeah. Now, also curious to ask you, what thing, the thing you you think would work out very well? Maybe that's yeah. Before deploying in a real robot, but the result wasn't expected or maybe counterintuitive for you. Maybe surprising. I don't know. What kind of something you thought would work out very well, but just in empirical world, just in deploying, that just was really yeah unexpected. That did that didn't work or unexpected good or unexpected bad. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. maybe you thought it would work. It didn't work. Maybe it yeah. worked in a surprising way or you have fascinating. Uh, Result, I don't know, something's maybe surprising. So I think one of the great things about um, robotics, and I go back to my hero, Rodney Brooks, um, emergent behavior, you know, when the robot does something you do, didn't expect. I recall in about 1989, when I was a graduate student in Oxford in the basement of the, uh, the Jenkin building where the robotics lab was, I had this experiment going where the robot was navigating around in the very small area, but using SLAM and a common filter, not, not sorry, using localization with a common filter, with a hand-generated prior map, but the robot was doing data association and some state estimation that it could it could navigate quite accurately. And I remember running an experiment where the robot was running around and around, and I for, I forgot that the robot was moving, you know, and the robot comes around the corner, you know, nice and slowly, and it's like, oh, yeah, you're still going, you know? And so I've had um, some uh, tremendous emergent behavior stories with underwater robots. So one of the fortunate things in my career, I got to go to MIT, in 1991 as a postdoc and joined the uh, MITC Grant Autonomous Underwater Vehicle Lab with uh, James Bellingham. And um, it's a very long story, but we uh, developed a, a novel robot called the Odyssey 2 in 1994, which uh, was a low-cost survey autonomous underwater vehicle that we had to take to the Arctic, 200 miles north of the north coast of Alaska. And it had to run its missions untethered and home back into a net for like a, for, for retrieving the robot homing into a pinger and we were testing it in a frozen lake in new hampshire maybe one 18 inches of ice uh very cold winter um and our robot um it i i made a mistake as the programmer and i programmed the wrong mission and and it didn't it wasn't programmed to come back and home into the net so we lost our robot and uh we were all kind of scared and panicked and looking around for it with pingers drilling holes in the ice but i i um I commanded another mission to move the robot and I had accidentally sent the mission that it should have done the last time to do a little survey and home into the net. And so the robot actually um, uh, started to do this kind of crazy, what looked seemed crazy survey pattern and we were getting more depressed that a robot, what's it doing? And then I remember we had a wonderful French postdoc, Jerome Vaginet, and he went, we, we, he went back to our net, to our tent to get his computer some, uh, compass or something, and the robot had homed into the net autonomously, and it was exactly where it should have been from the previous mission. And he's like shouting on the radio, "It's in the net! It's in the net! It's in the net!" And so we thought we'd lost our robot, and we'd all lose our jobs because this is an expensive thing. And the robot emergently decided to do the right thing and go back home. So maybe in this search year, what's something you think in robotics? Maybe change it. Yeah, because I, I think when, yeah, 30 years ago, I don't know how it was, yeah, this kind of challenges or ideas, what is next we have to do? What did change in 30 years till now? How do you see the progress in general? I can think of lots of things technologically. One thing I want to point out is um, diversity. I see, I'm a big fan of diversity and increasing participation of women and underrepresented minorities in robotics. And I, I see um, many strong 
uh, female and underrepresented minority roboticists, many more than I had seen a long time ago. And for example, at MIT, I was recently in a PhD committee meeting where the PhD student was a woman, three other faculty were all women. I was the only man in the room. That's, that's changed in 30 years in a good way. Um, in terms of technologically, I think that um, we, uh, it's hard to, obviously having GPUs and deep learning and sort of this massive amounts of computation available is, is kind of game changing. But I, I think uh, what, I, um, what concerns me is that we, we still have the question of robustness. How do you truly sort of trust that a system is going to work? And it's, it's a little easy to somehow make your video or choose your results from when things kind of work well. Um, but in practice, there's sort of a, an ROC curve. There's a, there's a receiver operating characteristic curve that says the false positives versus false negatives. And there's going to be times when, you know, things don't necessarily work. So, so what I would say in terms of things that I start to see changing um, um, work, for example, my, my former student, David Rosen at MIT on, uh, uh, and Luca Carloni, my colleague on the faculty of certifiable perception. So, so algorithms that can self-certify their results in certain situations. So, so I, I would love us to be able to develop um, systems that can self-certify the kind of outputs of their decisions or verify their assumptions um, so that then we could trust their, the integration of those components into larger systems that it would do the right thing and be safe around people. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. But I think maybe here's maybe a question a student can ask about the problem of robustness as well, how to be make sure it's robust. Do you think that's something because of the pressure that you have to get results sometimes? Yeah, recently we have to pressure. As you mentioned, you have to get this working for the first time, but we don't invest a lot of time about making sure it's robust and reproducible and the performance as well. Do you think there's a problem here? Where it's come from, essentially? Well, I think it's it's a problem and it's an opportunity. And I, um, I mean, I've been myself, you know, pushing at the paper deadline, trying to get things to work. And, you know, and I think we really were in a phase in robotics maybe 30 years ago, 20 years ago, where getting it to work once, you know, getting the figure, getting the movie, that, you know, that was an achievement. Um, I think the question of how do you um, show uh, the ability to operate under a wider set of conditions um, and, and, uh, and show where your algorithm fails, you know, uh, that's, that's important. I mean, as we, you know, there are movements, for example, um, uh, posting code uh, on uh, like papers with code. Um, imagine a world where we have, um, it, it's not even, a, there's like a standard robot. So imagine there's a $3,000 multi-arm manipulating walking robot that we all have. And you could basically, um, your, your paper includes a sort of a code that's sort of like almost like something that, you know, maybe on a USB stick kind of thing that you could just punch it into a robot and it will duplicate the same performance. So I guess it's, uh, it's really reproducibility and open access. Um, but the thing that's unique about robotics is that it's in the physical world. So, so in say CVPR or computer vision conferences, you could say, okay, here's my code and you can apply it to this kitty data set and get this number and, and that's all good. But how do we go beyond like a static data set to a closed loop robot where it's like, you know, if, if you load, load my code on your robot, 
and it will pick up your coffee mug, you know, and put it back where it belongs. Something like that.